Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. If when you read a work of fiction, you are never alone, since you can hear the voice of the writer, then when you read a work in translation, you're in sort of a threesome. The translator, as Cervantes is said to have said, is there at the edge of the frame, revealing the other side of the tapestry. Susan Bernofsky has been translating from German into English for decades, focusing on the writers Robert Walser, Yoko Tawada, and Jenny Erpenbeck. Her latest book is a biography of Walser, Clairvoyant of the Small, and she is now translating Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, a very brief excerpt of which we published earlier this year. Bernofsky directs the Literary Translation Program at Columbia's School of the Arts, and she joins us on the podcast to talk about the joys and struggles of bringing another writer's words into English. Thanks so much for talking to me, Susan. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. I'm very excited. I'm always interested in how people fall into translating literary fiction, since it is something of a niche field. And in my opinion, we don't really read nearly enough literature and translation in America, at least. So how did yes. you fall into this field? Well, I came to literary translation as a writer. So I was studying creative writing, and I was also learning German, studying German. And somehow, the in the course of learning the German language, I would you know, be translating as part of language learning. And it was always really fun for me. And then one of my creative writing teachers also, you know, encouraged me to try translating just as a writing exercise. And then once I was reading a lot of literature written in German, there were things I was finding that I was excited about and wanted to share with friends of mine, you know, that I wouldn't have been able to share with them in the German original because I didn't read German. So you know, like Yoko Tawada is an author who I started translating just because, you know, as a young person living in Germany, I came across a very short piece by her in a literary magazine that just so blew me away that I immediately sat down and translated it to, you know, to to show to other people. So it was a way of taking my excitement about what I was reading and discovering in this new language and meshing that that love with the writerly activity that I was also, you know, devoting my life to. So, you know, writing plus reading plus love equals translation. I feel like in translating, there's always this kind of tension between criticism and creation in it. And you've spoken elsewhere about how like you see translation as an act of storytelling, which, you know, is part of the writing process. How do you reconcile your voice with the writer's voice? Yeah, well, you know, there is no such thing as a neutral translation. It's not, it's just simply not possible. And so, you know, we can be more or less in denial with regard to how subjective our interpretations and readings and translations are, but really every person who reads a text is going to read it a little differently from every other person. And of course, that, that, that sort of, you know, richness and their disparities, but it's also, you know, mm, how, how do I even put it? You know, each text produces so many different possible spheres of, of, meaning for all the possible readers. And, you know, translations are a way of making visible how you've read a text. You know, you reveal it and through the language, through the decisions you make while writing the translation. 
you know, your feeling about the text, you know, what you emphasize. But it really, you know, the more you translate, the less you think it's possible to translate, you know, just in a, in a quote unquote normal way, every single translation that ever existed is somehow skewed through the perspective of the translator. And that's, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's stressful to be translated if you're too worried about maintaining control. You know, Yoko Tawad is a very interesting person to translate because she comes to the, the, the project of being translated with the attitude, hmm, my translators are going to change my text and add their own stuff. Cool. Which, given the playfulness of her writing, is helpful and productive. She's a really interesting case because she writes in both Japanese and German and translates herself and I loved your story, like the story you told about just like loving her work and wanting to just like share it with people. But you mm -hmm. didn't reveal the punchline of that story, which is that you wrote her a letter. Yeah, it's true. I big time fangirled her. Um, and it, I was very, very, very happy to, re to very soon receive a letter back. You know, I'd written to her care of the magazine where I'd first read her, read her piece. And she wrote back right away saying, I'm so glad that you translated my piece. Here's another one. You want to translate this too? So, you know, that was the start of what became a decades long collaboration that started, I think, 1992. So that was, you know, a few minutes ago. We were both, you know, at the beginning of our careers at that point. I guess the moral of the story is always fangirl, the writers you <laughs> love. It can never hurt. Well, granted, you couldn't exactly do that with Robert Walzer since he died half a century ago. Um, how did yes. you fall in love with Walzer? I mean, I assume it's a love relationship since it has also been decades. Yes, in, in, indeed. You know, he's just got such a weird way of seeing the world and such a original way of capturing that in language. I just, you know, after decades of working with him, with his, his fiction, I still find the way he writes surprising. I, mean, I will still laugh aloud while reading his sentences. Um, he's just so powerfully inventive and has such a, such a just wild way of letting sentences sprawl in a way that leads you places that you, you know, place idea places, thought places you might not wind up in. I just love how he'll like start a sentence, open a metaphor. The next thing you know, the, the, you know, the thing that was the comparison part of the metaphor is taken over as the, the main level of signification. The sentence is running off somewhere completely different and it's, it's a wild ride. And I, yeah, I, I just admire his writing so much. I bet that must be really fun to translate too. It really is. It really is. It's also hard and frustrating, but because you, the thing is, you know, he uses complexity to humorous effect. And it's hard not, to, it's hard to keep complexity from becoming dry or, you know, bureaucratic sounding. So that's always the challenge is to follow him on this wild ride and it's funny. Because in his work, it invariably is, even when he's talking about very serious things. And that's part of them, the, the tension of, in his work. I mean, so your new book, Clairvoyant of the Small, is the first English language biography of Walser. Between that and all of the writing of his that you've translated, do you feel like you're introducing the English readership to a writer that they might really not know as much about? Because he's, he's not as famous as the other 
you know, German writers he's often compared to, like Kafka. Everybody knows who Kafka is. You know, that was definitely the case 10 years ago. And now I'm not even so sure, you know, at, at, at the School of the Arts, the writing program, many of the students I encounter are at least as likely to have read Walzer as they are Kafka. Walzer is one of those writers who I think is really capturing the imagination of a new generation of writers, you know, people younger than me, certainly. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he's taken off? I think he's, his writing is somehow, ironically, or perhaps not really appropriate for our time. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of solace to be found in looking at small things and talking about small things, but also developing inventiveness around ideas of insignificance. Um, if you think about, you know, generation raised on, you know, blogging and using language to describe to, you know, just kind of wallpaper our lives with, there's a sense in which his writing really fits into that. You know, he will write a story, you know, today I got up and I stepped out of my room into the street where I saw X, Y, and Z. And there's, you know, there's a little diary function in it, a little public diary, like a blog or a vlog is that part of his art coincides well with ways people are encountering the world in language now. And he does it particularly artfully. At this point, you've translated multiple books by Walzer, Yoko Tabata, and Jenny Erpenbeck. How is it different to dip in and out of one author's bibliography with just one book versus returning again and again to the same writer, to the same stream of work, maybe yeah. even to the same consciousness? Yeah, that's that. That's a really interesting question, you know. Um, I do feel that you get deeper in there when you're following somebody's work for a while and more than one book because the threads become clearer, you know, what what's important to this writer, how how do they emphasize what's important to them, you know, are there light motifs that that you know that continue over more than one book. And I do think a, a prolonged engagement with one writer allows you to get inside the style and the voice a little more solidly. You know, publishers often try and get the same translators to translate the same authors because that translator's way of reading that author has become part of how that author's voice is defined in English. So um, it's definitely true that in different translations, authors will sound like slightly different people, you know, and there's some writers who have, you know, have had like more than one translator for a long time. Like, like I'm thinking about Cesar Ira and Bolaño, where Chris Andrews and Natasha Wimmer were both translating and maybe probably others as well. And what that means for the stability of the voice of that writer in English, it's not right or wrong to do it with different voices of the same voice. It just, I think, produces different effects, which is interesting to think about. I think it's really interesting that for some of these projects, you've definitely picked the books. You know, you chose to translate Yoko Tawada, um, yeah. Robert Walser, too. But then there are some other books that you've translated that are classics, where the publisher has approached you about doing a translation of Siddhartha yeah. or The Metamorphosis. How does that feel compared to your usual process? How does it feel to return to a work that has been mm -hmm. sort of in the translated English canon for a while? 
Yeah. I mean, that was, that's certainly been on my mind because of the magic mountain that I'm working on right now. Um, which I thought long and hard before saying yes to that, to that commission because it's such a huge book and it's been very well translated before. And that, you know, comes back to this notion of the translator as storyteller. I, I really think that particularly in the case of a classic work that is going to exist in more than one translation in English, the question becomes, you know, what does this translator have to say about this book that's going to be visible in that translation? You know, how will this translation really make us think differently about the book than, say, another translation? And I think it's so useful for there to be more than one translation of you know, these classic works of world literature because you can then triangulate between them. The reader who can't read it in German but really, really wants to get inside the book in English has the chance to compare more than one translation and, you know, between them lies the truth. I mean, you're still early in the process of doing The Magic Mountain and we did publish a very short excerpt of that work in progress, which I'm sure will yeah. change in like... I don't know. I don't want to jinx it. However long it takes you <laughs> to finish. <laughs> yes, let's not speculate too precisely there. So uh, what's the, what is the what is right now sort of the story, or at least when you were pitched this commission, what was your in to the Magic Mountain and what was the story mm. you wanted to tell? So I'm thinking about this story in terms of Germanic fairy tale tradition. You know, it's it's part of this genre of the young man sets out on a journey story and encounters more than he'd reckoned with, you know. Here we have a young man who's setting out for a, a three-week journey and, as we know, winds up staying considerably longer than that. But there, there are fairy tale motifs in the book that I'm noticing as I work and I'm trying to make them visible in the translation. How I go about this will probably shift and morph. But I, I want to get this sort of sense that we're reading this big inflated fairy tale in there. I also have this really strong relationship with Switzerland, you know, through my decades of work on Walzer. Magic Mountain is a very German book that is set in Switzerland. And the Swiss setting plays an important role. And so I'm thinking about the touristic view of Switzerland that both Hans Kastor, the protagonist of the book, and Thomas Mann would have had because, you know, for both the character and the author, this is an exotic location, which is not really something we think about, you know, maybe as English language readers of the book, we think of Switzerland and Germany being, you know, right next to each other and maybe similar in some ways, maybe not. Maybe I'm simplifying a bit there, but, but the difference between northern Germany and this mountainous region of Switzerland where the book is set in and around Davos is really huge. And so I'm thinking about how that, that adds to the sort of magic of the setting. And so in my descriptions of the landscape, I'm really taking a lot of pains to kind of crystallize out this, this sense of sort of magical grandeur in the setting of the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of the magic, too, of translating a book that was written decades ago today is that you can sort of help the reader with that interpretation, whereas like a yeah. German reader doesn't really have that guide unless they're reading an annotated edition, say. They're just sort of stuck with however they perceive yeah. Switzerland at the time. True. 
but they probably are also more likely to understand mm-hmm. what Mon's relationship to the setting would have been right. more than, say, a reader sitting in New York. Yeah. It's nice to have the help, though, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Built-in Cliff's notes. That's right. That's totally right. So, I mean, there's there's a big difference between translating Mon and Valser versus translating Jenny Ibrimbeck and Yoko Tawada, which is that yeah. the latter two are still with us. <laughs> How is that process different? I mean, you can't exactly go back and check with Robert Valser on like this difficult passage. Obviously not. Yeah. So what are the differences for you? Oh, I am always, always pestering living writers with questions <laughs> about their books and about sentences in the books specifically, you know, because very often, you know, you write something in such a way because the language in which you're writing makes this a expedient way to express yourself and exactly the same emphasis isn't going to be possible in the you know, in the translation. So maybe, maybe a sense is going to be weighted more in one or the other direction where it had sort of a easier ambiguity in the original. And often I'll find myself, you know, talking with authors about, okay, so if the sense had to go more in direction A or direction B, which seems to you more along the lines of what you want for this, for this moment, um, Lots of questions in, in that sort of form, say. There's no way for me to exactly communicate, and then I'll say what it is that I see there and describe the choices. Mm-hmm. So obviously your choice with, with Mon is to bring out the Ouija board. and <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I have one, but I have, not, I have not yet attempted to contact him with it. I'm, also, I'm, a little, I'm a little frightened, you know, what might happen. He's kind of intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, but Robert Walzer also, you know, mm, very yeah. strong, very strong personality. Do you have other references that you would go to then, you know, in the absence of an email address for Robert Walzer? Do you have diaries or letters or something that you might consult? Oh, constantly. Yeah, there, we have. There, he didn't keep diaries, but there are letters. And I make also very heavy use of older reference works. I have this incredible dictionary four-volume bilingual dictionary, Moritz Sanders Langenscheidt, from the turn of the 20th century that I inherited from an uncle who was born in in Gdansk when it was Danzig. Um, And I use this all the time. And it contains, you know, examples of usage from that time, which contemporary reference works, modern reference works don't have any longer. And I use this all the time. I use older books and even Google books to look at how words and phrases were used a hundred years ago, both in German and in English, to try and get a better sense for what sort of tone a sentence had back then. And, you know, what did the style really signify? Because sometimes it's difficult from the vantage point of today to really understand what a sentence felt like It takes a long time. (laughs) Well, no surprise there. I mean, I imagine, I mean, especially if the writer is dead and there's no way to consult with them, I I would feel that sense of obligation too, because you really, you have to do right by them. And if it's so important to translate it, it's important to get it right. Yeah. I mean, right. If you're going to do like the third published translation (laughs) of a thousand page novel, there's no point doing it in this, in this casual way. Right. 
something like that either has to be done very seriously or just, you know, there's no point. You mentioned thinking long and hard about taking this on. Are there projects that you have turned down before that have been offers? You don't have to name names, yeah. but I'm wondering. No, I can't. Like- I can, in fact, you know, um, I did a, I did a Siddhar- a Hesse's Siddhartha mm-hmm. for for Modern Library, and after that, I was invited to do a Steppenwolf, and then I went. As I had done, before, you know, before before accepting to do the Siddhartha, and as I would do with any retranslation, I went and looked at the at the existing translations to get a sense. Given that these translations already exist, do I have something? Do I feel I have something to say about this book that still needs saying? And with the case of Siddhartha, I did think it was the case. With the case of Steppenwolf, I looked at the Basil Creighton translation, an old translation of it, and I thought, wow, I'm, this translation really hits what I feel about this book. And I didn't feel that I had anything to add. And so I turned that one down and I saw that it's recently been republished in an updated form. I think another translator was hired to sort of you know, vet it for some semantic errors, you know, that that the older translations might have here and there. But, you know, the voice of that translation, the tone of it just felt so right to me for that book that I, yeah, I turned that down. I just didn't feel like I had something new to say about it. Are you ever surprised by the offers for translations you get? Like, oh, this is something I never would have picked for myself, but I'm intrigued. And I want yeah, to I mean, it, it, Magic Mountain was a surprise, you know? Yeah. It would never, it would, you know, it's a book that I read twice in the past, once in English before my German was good enough, and then once in German, you know, it's, and it's an amazing and influential book. Um, but I would never have thought, I would never kind of come up with the idea for myself, oh, yes, that's the thing I want to do next. Um and it was it was a big decision because I knew it would take you know years to complete, and you know it's a it's a big commitment. But I'm having such a fascinating time really digging into it. The book is so rich in its details, and Mon is, you know, a, a re- really, I mean, gee, I'm going to say that Thomas Mann is an artful writer. Wow, Cal surprise. But um, you know you. Once you sort of get into the weeds with a book, you really see how a writer works in microcosm and what he's doing in microcosm is really sophisticated. And, you know, I'm now reading the book more carefully than I ever had before because I'm looking, taking apart each sentence and looking carefully, like, what is he doing here? Why is he doing it? You know, how can I figure out how to do the things, the most important things about this a given this this specific sentence and make it visible in English. Um, it's really fascinating. I'm 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 thrilled and grateful to have been offered this really interesting job. Is there a through line for the writers that you've translated, especially the ones you have translated a lot, like Walzer, Tabata, Erpenbeck? Is there something about the three of them that you found so appealing that you had to come back again and again? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. The through line is from literary modernism, German modernism, just this period where the the writers are just really digging into the lushness 
of language in a foregrounded way and sort of making the way they use language a key part of the story they are telling. Um, that line leads directly to the turn of the 21st century writers, you know, Erpenbeck and Tawada, who are also incredibly careful with what they do on the sentence level. The plasticity of language is really key for them. And I do feel a sort of inheritance and continuity there. I think both of these contemporary writers come right out of modernism. And the, you know, the, the writing that most excites me in whatever language is writing in which language is not just used as a, you know, as if it were a transparent medium for communicating information, but rather, you know, a thick medium that also shapes the information. We have links in the show notes to Susan Bernofsky's work, both her numerous translations and her most recent book, Clairvoyant of the Small, the first biography of Robert Walser in English. You can also find her translations on her website and on her long-running blog, Translationista. If you cannot get enough talk of translation, we also have links to two previous Smarty Pants episodes about Bible translation with the famed translator Robert Alter, as well as interviews with the writers and translators behind the very first novel in Malagasy and the first short story collection in Tibetan to be translated into English. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>